All right. Well, that was cool. Hello. Welcome to PBC. Let me add my greeting. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Really excited to be here with you. Glad you're here with us. I'm excited to talk about marriage this morning. It's really fun seeing the chokes and the lies dedicate children. I was involved with their premarital counseling and getting them married. So here they are being a family and everything. And that's great. I want to start off this morning like I usually do by quoting a first century Chinese poem. Uh, I think a lot of you probably don't speak Chinese, so I'll just read the translation for for your sake. Um, So here we go. This is called Reverencing the Husband. All right. When a girl leaves her father's house, her husband thereafter is her nearest relative. Her husband is to her as heaven. How dare she fail to reverence him? The poem continues later on. If the husband is angry, let not the wife be angry in return, but meekly yield to him and press down her angry feelings. Well, here's a quote from a Roman author named Plutarch around the same time, also first century. He says, a virtuous woman ought to be most visible in her husband's company and to stay in the house and hide herself when he is away. All right. Here's a Jewish writer named Philo. Here's what he says in the first century. Taking care of the house and remaining at home are the proper duties of women. Therefore, let no woman busy herself about those things which are beyond the province of economy, but let her cultivate solitude and not be seen to be going about like a woman who walks the streets in the sight of other men. Well, there you have it. Three different first century cultural perspectives on what marriage is supposed to be like. And honestly, those words should be difficult to hear because they express a perspective that has throughout centuries brought a lot of pain and damage to women. Unfortunately, even the words that we're going to look at this morning have been used to justify abuse, to bring about violence, and to perpetuate systems that devalue women. So in the midst of all of that, how are we to go to the scriptures and find God's intention for marriage? We're working our way nearing the end of our series in the book of Ephesians. We've subtitled this series, The Mystery of Christ, because that word mystery shows up six times in this book. And each time it does, it seems to address some aspect of unity, first on a cosmic scale, then on an ethnic level, then in a community dimension where the body is coming together. And now as we get to the passage on marriage, we're going to see how that theme of unity is applied to the marriage between a man and a woman. We're going to be talking about marriage and the mystery. Our passage for the morning is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. If you have Bibles or phones or anything, you might want to open it up. We're going to be looking at that passage in detail. It begins with instructions to wives, and then it gives instructions to husbands. And finally, there's this surprise ending about what's really going on 
the whole time. Now, you might think that this is a sermon for married people, but let me convince you otherwise. Marriage affects everyone. Some of you are married. Some of you want to be married. Some of you wish you weren't married. Um, Some of you were married and you've lost your marriage and you're grieving that. Some of you hope one day to be married. Some of you were born to parents and were raised by parents who were married. Some of you were raised by individuals that weren't married. No matter what your experience has been or is now, marriage affects you. Marriage affects all of us. And it's really tricky to figure out how to get at the heart of marriage. It's hard to sort through all the various cultural demands and expectations and our personal histories. But here's my hope this morning is that when we read these words from the scriptures, we are going to see how the apostle Paul offers people a reorientation towards Christ in the midst of marriage that changes everything. We're going to see that as each partner turns their attention from their spouse to the savior, that they find liberation. They find a freedom in marriage that's very much like the freedom we found in Christ. It's very much like the freedom that is found when a community comes together. It's the gospel of forgiveness and grace and transformation applied to the arena of marriage. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to say a few preliminary thoughts here to uh, address a few things. First of all, I have a lot more to say than I can fit in the time you're willing to sit here and listen to me. (laughs) So what I've done is I've written up more than I'm actually going to preach, and you can find that online. So if you didn't get enough of my thoughts, if you want to go deeper or if something I've said confuses you, go to what I've written and, and there's some more detail there. You can find it online. There's kind of an issue with the way our sermons are being shown right now. But if you go to our website, pbc.org, on the homepage, scroll down to the bottom, you'll see the sermon. And there's a link that says sermon text. Click that and you'll get over 8,000 words of my thoughts. Uh, So get a cup of coffee, get comfortable and go for it. Second of all, um, I want to say that all of us, as we've already said, come to this passage with a bunch of baggage. We all have our personal opinions. We all have cultures that we come from. And so rather than claiming that I've somehow managed to rid myself of all that and offer you a a pure view of the scriptures, it's best to simply acknowledge that we all are reading the text through a dirty lens. And if nothing else, that should give us some humility with the conclusions we come to. To realize that I might be seeing it wrong. You might be seeing it wrong. And because of that, we're on this journey together to understand what God might be saying to us. Third, uh, if you're familiar with this topic in Christian circles, you might know the two terms that often the debate is divided among complementarians and egalitarians. Personally, I find that I don't fully resonate with either of those camps. 
I think sometimes our tendency is to come to the scriptures looking for the answers to our questions rather than trying to find out what the scriptures are saying to us. And our question in a lot of institutions is, how do we distribute the power among the various parties? Complementarians have one answer to that question. Egalitarians have another answer to that question. But my reading of the scripture is that that's not the main question the author is trying to get at. And I think you can have a Christ-centered marriage that looks a lot of different ways. So because of that, um, I'm not going to land in a camp, which means I can make a pretty confident promise to you this morning. I will say something that you will disagree with. I probably already have. So let's just have fun with that and uh, be okay with the fact that we're on this journey together. My only request of you is that if I do say something you disagree with, maybe strongly so, uh, take a second to understand what it is I've said. Go to the scriptures yourself. Pray that the spirit would guide you and, and let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. Last thing I'll say is just to kind of briefly outline where I think we're going to go this morning. My view of what this passage says is that I don't read these words as either establishing or defending a hierarchical authority structure within marriage. What I think is going on in these in this passage, is that the Apostle Paul is giving men and women who find themselves committed to another person the guidance they need to overcome their own sinful tendencies in order to be redeemed by Christ and lay themselves down, each one for the sake of the other. And when they do that, they find something incredible, a kind of unity and connection, and intimacy with Christ that is unbelievable. I hope that's what we're going to see as we unpack these words together. We're going to start with the text by looking in the middle of the passage, because right about the middle, the Apostle Paul quotes the creation story from Genesis. And the way he does that, I think, can help us identify the problem that he's addressing with this passage. So Ephesians 5.31 lists Paul quoting Genesis 2.24. And this is what he says. Ephesians 5, verse 31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a picture of unity, of two individuals coming together to become one. And if you've been with us as we've been in the book of Ephesians, that verse might remind you of a verse we saw earlier in Ephesians. This is Ephesians 2, verse 15. That Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus creating peace. So in that passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking of how Jesus unites two warring ethnic groups with a history of hatred and violence into one new creation. In the passage in Genesis, we see how God expects unity and intends unity for marriage. But we know that sometimes marriage can feel like two warring ethnic groups 
with a history of hatred and distrust. How did we get there? Well, if we keep reading in Genesis, we see why that happened. See, what Paul, what what the, uh, not Paul, different guy, what the author of Genesis does is he describes the unity God intends, but then he records when God describes the consequences of sin in a bunch of different areas. When he gets to marriage, this is what God says the consequences of sin on marriage are. This is Genesis 3, verse 16. He says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That verse describes a power struggle. The verse desire there, your desire shall be for your husband. It's it's an awkward phrase, but the same word is used in the next chapter to refer to sin trying to control Cain. And so what we see here is two sinful people, each one of them trying to control the other. When my wife and I were uh, just starting to date, I felt like, At every turn, I was amazed at how similar we were. Every day we went on, I was like, oh, you like that? I like that too. You want to do this thing? Oh, let's do that together. It was like, just, we must just been designed for each other. And then there was our marriage day. And it was like a switch got flipped. (laughs) And from that day on, it was like every turn, I realized how completely different we were. Oh, you load the dishwasher that way? Who taught you to do that? That's not how dishwashers work. Oh, you want to do this? I hate doing that. How could you possibly think this way? This is obviously the right way to think. And in those differences and disappointments, I realized that there's a critical opportunity. See, what happens is a lot of us go into marriage because we're looking for something for no other person. And we think maybe we found it. But then as marriage gets real, there are times when we don't get what we want from our spouse. And the question is, in those moments, what do you do? Because of sin in our lives and in our hearts, our tendency is to find a way to get what we want from the other person. And we start to use all these different methods of control available to us to do so. Maybe it's domination. Maybe it's manipulation. Maybe it's deceit. Maybe it's persuasion. Maybe we just try to be real nice in hopes that they'll reciprocate. But the core issue is how can we get what we want from the person that we're married to? That's what Genesis describes. But if Genesis 3 is the poison of sin on marriage, then Ephesians 5 is the antidote. Ephesians 5 gives wives and husbands the instructions they need to overcome those sinful tendencies and instead sacrifice themselves for the sake of the other person. That's what we see in our passage this morning. Because the core issue for men and women is the same. We're all selfish. We're all trying to get what we want. But with Christ, something new can happen. So my hope for us this morning is that we would look for how Christ 
redeems marriage. Look for how Christ redeems marriage. We're going to see how the instructions address that core issue in different ways because men and women are different. Wives and husbands are different. They tend to play out their sinful tendencies in different ways and so they need different commands. But the core issue is the same. Submission and sacrifice are the two different ways the Apostle Paul gives wives and husbands to find Christ in the center And so those instructions become an invitation to see Christ redeem marriage. Well, let's see how that plays out practically. The Apostle Paul begins with instructions to wives. Here's Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit in everything to their husbands. Let's start by talking about that word submit. We all love that word, don't we? Here's what Merriam-Webster says about the word. It's defined as, to yield oneself to the authority or will of another. To yield oneself to the authority or will of another. It's a pretty good definition of submit. It's a pretty good definition even of the Greek word that's being used there in the New Testament. It's an action. It's a choice. It's something you do. It's not putting yourself wholeheartedly subservient to someone else. It's a choice in a moment to yield to another person. The word is used all throughout the New Testament. Jesus submits to his parents. Young people submit to elders. Citizens submit to their government. Everyone submits to God. And in the previous verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 5.21, we saw that the apostle calls the whole church to submit one to another. So the purpose here is to yield your will yield your desire to the will of someone else. Wives are given that instruction twice in this passage. Two times they're told, submit to your husbands for two different reasons. The first has to do with Christ. The second has to do with their husband. So the first phrase says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And what's being said there is not that they are to act as if their husband is the Lord, but that they are to relate to their husband in a way that plays out their discipleship to Christ. That when they treat, when a woman treats her husband in this way, what she is actually doing is following Christ in that moment. The goal here is to take her attention off her husband, and point it toward Jesus. So that in reality, she is submitting to Christ when she treats her husband in the way that Paul instructs. The second instruction has to do with her husband. She uses a, uh, the apostle Paul uses a familiar metaphor of the body. We've seen that before in Ephesians. It's been used several times in this book. And, uh, What's being said here is that the husband and wife relate to each other in a similar way as the head and the body of a human 
person relate to each other. Now, um, this does not mean that women do everything a man says. It means that this metaphor is communicating something important. Sometimes people refer to that as male headship, but that just looks at one part of the metaphor. The metaphor is a holistic image of a human person here. It's also important to note that the metaphor is not an instruction. It is a description. It's not saying men act like the heads or women act like a body. It's saying this is the way things are. And because of that, you should act a certain way. So let's try to understand that metaphor a little bit better. Um, it's actually used all over the scriptures, all over the New Testament, the idea of a body. Um, and there's a couple different aspects to the metaphor. Most of them seem to do with either authority or unity or both. Um, but we've already seen in the book of Ephesians that this idea of unity is a prominent idea. And so when we get to this metaphor, it's, it's the theme of unity that we sometimes overlook. So let's think about it this way. I have here a human person. You recognize this, right? Little purple paper doll, okay? Now, this is a person. What happens when I do this? What do I have now? A one-armed person, right? I was going to do this with an actual doll and like rip limbs off, but the worship team was like, there might be kids in the room. You don't want to traumatize them. So hopefully this isn't too traumatizing. Okay, here's our one-armed person. Here's another person. And what do I have now? A one-legged person, right? Indeed. Okay. Here's another person. What happens if I do this? I know, horrible, right? What do I have here? A dead person. There is no more person, right? So think about this metaphor then. The body and the head. The connection between them is so critical that if that connection is severed, the person ceases to exist. That's not true of arms and legs and fingers and toes. You can be a one-armed person. You can be a one-legged person. You cannot be a headless person. So the Apostle Paul is saying that this connection, this unity between head and body is critical to the functioning of the person. So here's the question. I want to address the women in the room for a moment and say to you, what are you trying to get out of your husband? Maybe you're not married, which is fine. Maybe you want to be married and you're hoping to be able to get something from a husband. Maybe you used to be married and you were trying to get something from your husband. Maybe you have no thoughts of marriage, but you're trying to get something from other people in your life. What are you trying to get from your husband? Maybe it's approval or harmony or peace or identity. It's different for all of us. Now, what do you do when you don't get that? When he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain? What do you do? 
And here's my encouragement to you. Wives, get what you need from Christ. Wives, get what you need from Christ. Truth is, I know some of your husbands. I don't know all of them. But you can't get what you need from them. (laughs) They don't have it. The ones I know certainly don't. (laughs) But Christ does. You're going to have a whole lot more success getting what you need from him. Remember, too, that control can look a lot of different ways. Sometimes I know women that control by trying not to control, by keeping quiet, by never saying what they think, by trying to keep things harmonious, and they end up disappearing. That can't be what's in view here. Think about how We submit to Christ. We bring all of ourselves to Christ. We say all of what we need, all of our hopes and fears and hurts, and we trust him with it. Sometimes submitting to your husband means showing up and being honest and not being afraid to make him angry or disappointed or fracturing the harmony that that you're desperate for. This is an opportunity to reorient yourself towards Christ instead of another person. Can you imagine the freedom of being able to love your husband without needing something from him? Can you imagine the intoxicating unity that you would feel in a marriage characterized by that kind of selfless love. Well, the Apostle Paul starts with wives, but then he moves on to husbands. And as Coloma pointed out, the the instructions to husbands are much longer, but at the root, we're going to see that they're very similar. Here's Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 30. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Once again, we have two commands here. The same command repeated twice. Husbands, love your wives. And once again, each command is grounded in a different thing. The first one to do with Christ, the second to do with the wife. First, the husband is reoriented by pointing himself towards Christ instead of his wife. He is told to love his wife as Christ does the church who gave himself up for her. And I think that's a helpful way to summarize the instructions to husbands with the idea of sacrifice. Husbands sacrifice in the same way that Christ sacrificed. And so the attention is drawn off of the woman to Christ. 
he is sacrificing as Christ has sacrificed. The second reason why the husbands ought to sacrifice is that they are a body. They are one. Very clearly here, the emphasis of the unity of head, of the metaphor of head and body is on unity. It says when a husband loves his wife, he loves himself. Here's what husbands need to know. You think that you need to get your way, but what you don't realize is that you and your wife are one. So that when she gets her way, you get your way. Either way, you get your way. So find a way to give up your way, choose her way, and get your way anyway. <sighs> I was really worried I was going to get that wrong. <clears throat> it's oneness. It's unity. It's one body together. So here's the question for the men in the room. What are you trying to get from your wives? Maybe you're married. Maybe you're not married. Same thing applies. What are you trying to get out of marriage? In my experience, it, it's a little harder for men to answer that question than women. I think we don't realize what we're trying to get as quickly. But maybe it's companionship or a playmate. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's friendship. Maybe it's for her to be happy. And then the same question applies. What do you do when you don't get what you want from her? When she doesn't hold up her end of the bargain? What happens in your heart and what do you do in that moment? Do you try to force it from her? Husbands, we have the same invitation. Husbands, get what you need from Christ. Husbands, get what you need from Christ. That's the call to us. When we get what we need from Christ, we can lay down our lives freely. There's nothing holding us back. In the first century, it was a common idea that the body was supposed to sacrifice itself for the head. Uh, the Roman author Seneca wrote about how the army relates to the head of the city. Um, he said that the, that, that the emperor was the head and it was the job of the people, the body, to sacrifice themselves to preserve the head because the emperor was the most important thing. But the Apostle Paul turns that upside down and says, no, it's the head's job to sacrifice for the body. And that's important for us as husbands to take to heart because in a lot of marriages, it ends up being the body that sacrifices for the head. It may not be that men are trying to do that. It may just happen. It may be our culture. But a lot of women end up giving up their dreams, their, their hopes, their bodies, their health for the sake of the man in their lives. And this instruction tells us as men that it's our job to sacrifice for the sake of the women in our lives. Can you imagine, husbands, the freedom 
of loving your wife without needing something from her. Can you imagine the intoxicating unity that you would experience in a marriage like that? When you lay down yourselves and find Christ, you're on the road to that kind of marriage. So the apostle has addressed wives and husbands, and and then he just throws a wrench into the whole thing. Then he says, by the way, I wasn't really talking about marriage anyway. This is Ephesians 5, 32 to 33. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he says that I was talking about Christ all along. I was talking about the church. I was talking about everyone. This is the fifth of the six occurrences of the word mystery in the book of Ephesians. And remember, that word has has referred to cosmic unity. It's referred to ethnic unity. It's referred to the unity of the church exercising its different gifts. And now we see that it's referring to marriage unity. And what we realize is that the core issue here is the same. That when each of us can find a way to lay down our lives for the sake of the other, we experience a kind of unity that that magnifies Christ and that allows us to connect with him. And when that happens, the details tend to work themselves out of how to make decisions and how to do various things. When Christ is at the center, we don't need an org chart because we're willing to give ourselves up for the person we're with. This has been my experience in marriage. When I first got married, uh, I'd read all the books, all the Christian books, and, and I, was, I was ready. I was going to be a good Christian, head of the wife, leader. I was going to lead my wife, and uh, it, it didn't work. <laughs> I found the more I tried to lead, the more conflict we had. And uh, we entered into a season of of a lot of marriage struggle. It helped me to return to the scriptures and to read the instructions to me and to realize um, the thing that Scott had pointed out in the video, that the scriptures don't tell me to lead her. They tell me to love her and to lay myself down. I realized that I was trying to get what I wanted from her. And they were all the things. I wanted companionship. I wanted sex. I wanted approval. I wanted her to be happy. I wanted all these things. And when I didn't get them, I tried to control her to get it out of her. I mean, I was really nice about it. Like, in the nicest, most Christian kind of way, I was trying to control her. But nonetheless, I was trying to get what I wanted from this woman that I was married to her. And we find ourselves fighting. We, it felt like we, we'd hit these issues and just circle around them over and over again. It was in one of those times, I remember, that I just encountered Christ in a powerful way. This vivid memory of being in a family room in our house, I think it was late at night, and I was just on my knees weeping because this whole thing was so hard 
I was in seminary at the time. I, I was supposed to be training to be a pastor. My marriage was supposed to be good because aren't pastors supposed to have good marriages? I don't know. I was just weeping because I didn't know what to do. And in that moment, Christ was there with me. Christ became my companion. Christ became my approval. Christ gave me the intimacy that I craved. And I started to learn, and I'm still learning, how that frees me up to love my wife without needing something from her. So the invitation to all of us is the same. Find Christ in marriage. Find Christ in marriage. I know there's a lot of hurting marriages in our culture right now. COVID has been hard on marriage. And there's a lot of people trying to figure out, what do I do? How do I make this thing work? And I want to say to you that there is hope. That there is hope because Christ can transform our lives. I've seen it happen. The same God that did it before can do it again. But I also want to tell you that there is hope even if your marriage doesn't get better. Because what this passage says is that when we reorient ourselves towards Christ, we're not desperate to make things work because we can find Christ even in the pain. So maybe you're married and it's great and you can find Christ there. Maybe you're married and it's not so great but you can find Christ there. Maybe you desperately wish you were married and there's no prospects on the horizon. You can find Christ there. Maybe you hope one day to be married. You can find Christ as you wait. Maybe you're still grieving the loss of a marriage and wondering what went wrong. You can find Christ there. No matter where you are, you can find Christ. And when you do, it's powerful. It's freedom. It's love. It's grace. We started off by thinking about all the different cultural perspectives on what marriage was supposed to be. And the truth is we swim in those things. There's all sorts of expectations and messages and views and do this and don't do this and it should look like this and it shouldn't look like that. But what the Apostle Paul gives us is something deeper. A reorientation away from structures and, and systems and do's and don'ts towards the person of Christ in our lives played out in marriage. He's trying to help a man and a woman find unity, the kind of unity he's been describing all through this book. He's leading them to do that by helping them figure out how to give up themselves for the sake of the other. The same thing he's been doing in the book for all sorts of other situations. And at the heart of it is the person of Christ. Finding him to give ourselves up to achieve that kind of unity. I want to invite the band to come back up. And as we continue worshiping this morning, um, I want to invite you into that experience. We're going to sing of Christ. 
And I want to invite you to worship in a way where you can reorient yourself away from your spouse or your friends or your family or your job or whatever it is. And you can find yourself in Christ because that's where there's freedom. That's where God wants us to be. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the gift of marriage, for the the beauty that it can be, for the power that marriage has to grow us as individuals, to, to demonstrate your love to the world, to become a place for children to grow up and to see Christ-like love demonstrated. God, I pray for our marriages. I pray for your presence within them. I know there's a lot of hurt and struggle. I pray that you would be in the middle of that, ministering to men and women, drawing them together in unity, but also helping them to find you in the midst of wherever they find themselves. And for all of us, Father, Show us Christ. Help us to see him, to love him, to be loved by him, and to worship him in gratitude. We pray in his precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen.